there's one thing that's been a bit of a mystery since the recovery began, and that's when wages would rise. After all, the economy added 200,000 jobs in January, a healthy number. Unemployment is at 4.1 percent. And finally, we are starting to see some real wage growth, 2.9 percent higher than where we were last year. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And I'm throwing all these numbers at you because they set the stage for a lot of big national debates. One of those debates is about immigration. DACA, the wall, green cards. Often immigration becomes a hot-button issue when the economy is not in great shape and Americans can't find work. So right now is different. Last week, we talked about the president's proposals to cut legal immigration. This week, we're looking at the employer side of things. In particular, one program intended to flag undocumented immigrants when they apply for jobs. It's called E-Verify. It's in one of the House bills, though not the White House proposal. And to talk about it and whether it's doing its job, we have Alex Narasta, an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Julia Gillat, a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. I want to start with sort of the basics of E-Verify. It, it gets thrown around as um, a solution and sort of a technical one, and Americans approve of it, according to some polling, but a lot of us don't know that much about it. Uh, can you lay it out for us? Uh, Julia, why don't you start? Sure. So E-Verify is a system that allows employers to check whether people that they've newly hired are authorized to work in the United States. Essentially, they take the information provided by the employee, their name, date of birth, social security number, and run it through a system that checks it against government databases to see whether that person is authorized to work in the United States. And then the system will kick back either a kind of approved indication or a flag that there's some problem with the information that needs to be you know, further explored and rectified, or perhaps that the person is not authorized to work in the country. And one of the things I'm interested about here, Alex, and I want to p- have you pick up on this, is this question of whether it actually works because, you know, E-Verify gets tossed out there and then there's this sense, oh, that the data must be correct or that you can't enter, uh, say, falsified papers into it. And and how does how does that kind of measure up? So E-Verify really is sold as sort of a silver bullet that'll work 100 percent of the time. But it's simply not true in reality. There have been numerous audits of the program, one of which was conducted by Westat some years ago, which was an auditing firm. And they found that the system identifies roughly only about half of illegal immigrants who are actually checked through the program. So it's not very effective at doing that. Furthermore, it does have a sort of false positive, or I'll say a false negative rate, whereby a percentage of somewhere around less than 1%, but still substantial percent of legal workers in the United States are falsely identified Mm. as illegal. And that starts sort of this complicated legal process that can take a very long time to rectify, mostly solved pretty quickly. But the problem is, under the law, employers are not supposed to pre-screen employees before having them in or new hires uh, before doing the interview. But I think we know that a lot of employers don't want to waste the time with an interview don't want to make a job offer if it turns out the worker is an unlawful immigrant. So we definitely know pre-screening is going on. So if there's a problem with your data, you could not get accepted to numerous interviews, get rejected because your data's incorrect, 
but you don't know that that's the case. One of the things I'm curious about uh, is how this has worked in Arizona, which is a state that, you know, has had mandatory E-Verify, unlike a lot of other parts of the country. And we have seen both people uh, declined by the system, but then also this question of whether uh, they just sort of move into an underground economy and and do different types of labor rather than not being a part of the workforce overall. Do you guys want to jump in there? So I've taken a look at this uh, over time. There's government data on the number of new hires per state per year. Uh, And then we can compare that to the number of E-Verify checks that were conducted in that state in the same year. Now, in Arizona, it's supposed to be 100 percent. 100 percent of new hires is supposed to be run through the system. But in 2015, only about 74 percent were actually run through the system. And that's the highest percentage we've seen since the program was mandated there. And the other state of uh, Alabama, where it's mandated, only 46 percent were run through. In um, Mississippi, uh, 42 percent were run through. In South Carolina, where it's also mandated, only 69 percent were run through the system in that year. So in order to make sure that E-Verify checks are conducted properly and to make sure that employers actually use them, it basically requires government employees and, and auditors to go to the work site to check it out. So it is flawed in the same way that the rest of immigration enforcement is flawed in that it requires government employees to go to work sites to be able to check these things on the ground. And that's prohibitively expensive. Mm. Julia, when you think about the idea of E-Verify as some sort of national program with teeth to it, is that workable? Uh, you know, or, or is it this fig leaf that employers sort of nod to but then turn away from? As Alex has indicated, there are a lot of problems with the program. It has its strengths. You know, we know that jobs are what draw unauthorized immigrants to the United States. And so there's a certain logic to worksite enforcement to cutting off that job magnet. At the same time, the system is very imperfect at detecting who is an unauthorized immigrant worker. So expanding a flawed system nationwide means that those, you know, those problems will be expanded nationwide. There is that small false positive rate. And when you put all U.S. workers through the system, that adds up to a lot of people. And then I think this question of workers going underground, if workers can't get a job with a, an employer who plays by the rules, who follows the law and you know, uses E-Verify, then they'll go find a job with other employers who may be less scrupulous. And this can push unauthorized immigrant workers underground into more vulnerable positions, which can also undermine wages and working conditions for U.S. workers as well. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and I'm talking about immigration and employer verification with Alex Narasta of the Cato Institute and Julia Gillat of the Migration Policy Institute. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. Well, let's scope this out a little bit, because obviously I've been asking about E-Verify, but I think one of the big questions here is where businesses and certainly politically powerful businesses uh, fall on the immigration debate and, and what kind of partnership they may or may not have with the federal government. I mean, should private businesses essentially, um, you know, be, be the ones who are conducting immigration checks? Because that is, in, in essence, what some of these policies seem to dictate. Well, I think that it places a lot on the shoulders of employers. We've seen employers take different positions Over the years, in particular, the agricultural sector, you know, they feel very concerned that this would cut off their access to workers, that if they're mandated to use E-Verify, they want to see some kind of 
trade where they get a legalization program for their current workers or they have easier access to temporary workers in order to continue to have that agricultural workforce. Other employers have been more receptive to the program. They feel right now there's a patchwork of policies across the states. They'd like to play by the same rules across all of the states and that that would make it more fair to just, you know, have one system, work with it, learn how to use it and kind of go from there. Large employers are really big beneficiaries relative to small and medium-sized employers uh, when it comes to E-Verify. All federal contractors already have to use the program, and most or a large number of large employers in the U.S. are federal contractors. So they essentially already have E-Verify mandates on them. These large firms, though, also already have large HR departments. They can deal with the burdens of E-Verify without too much cost or burden, but small businesses, mid-sized businesses, businesses that don't have HR departments or maybe have you know, one person who does it part-time, they're really going to be at a disadvantage. So one of the interesting things you've seen over the last uh, decade since E-Verify has really come on scene is you've seen uh, it, it change from basically all employers being opposed to it to now a lot of larger employers saying, you know what, we need a level playing field. We have to essentially do it for our businesses um, our competitors should have to do it too. Well, as we turn toward you know yet another question of funding the government and trying to sort of carve out some type of pathway or deal here, do, do either of you think E-Verify is going to be a part of you know whatever discussions come next? It doesn't seem like it at this point. You know, the White House has put forward several lists of components that they think should be a part of any Dream or DACA deal. Um, And E-Verify has fallen off of their list of requirements. Most of the bipartisan kind of middle of the road proposals or deals, packages, don't include E-Verify at this point. Where you do see E-Verify is a conservative bill that's before the House, um, and the fate of that bill is uncertain. If we don't have some sort of, you know, legislative language that includes E-Verify, where does that leave the liability for employers, we've obviously seen things like big ice raids at companies like 7-Eleven. And I wonder if you're a business sitting watching this debate, a big one or a small one, you're probably thinking about your own, you know, both policies and liability here. So some states that have the E-Verify mandate, they do have a safe harbor where if you're an employer, you use E-Verify Um, you did it in good faith, and you still end up hiring an unlawful immigrant, maybe because they have false papers or whatnot, uh, then you're not liable. But some of the proposals that have been proposed over the years don't actually have a safe harbor provision. So they actually would probably increase the insecurity that a lot of employers would feel because they use this government system. And if the government system says this person is lawful and they hire them, Uh, Sometimes they'd still be on the hook. Hmm. Just a little anecdote. The last time the government put in place a sort of employment verification system uh, and mandated nationwide was with the I-9 system in 1986. And government reports in in the years after that found that Hispanic workers who were legal in the U.S. had a much harder time finding jobs. Um, and saw wage, small wage declines as a result because employers didn't want to take the risk. So, so as a result, they didn't usually interview them as much and didn't even enter that process with them. Alex Narasta and Julia Gillette, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks. As an employer, have you used E-Verify? What was your experience? Or have you been interviewed for a job and told your papers would be checked via the system? Let us know. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. Thank you.
We are all about the numbers in Marketplace. Stock market, personal finance, you know the drill. So let's take a look at the news by the numbers, the airline edition, with Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Tony, let's start with you. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 129. That's the percent increase in flights with the fastest kind of Wi-Fi, according to aviation data company Root Happy. More airlines are moving away from expensive slow systems and switching over to faster satellites. But if you were hoping to stream Netflix on your next international flight, you're probably still out of luck. Only about one third of planes outside the U.S. have Wi-Fi at all, let alone the good stuff. I'm clutching my pearls. 80. Percent, that is. That's how confident Google has to be in a flight delay in order to notify Google Flight users. Google is rolling out a new delay prediction feature to its flight search and flagging wait times in its app. The search giant is using machine learning to predict delays that the airlines haven't seen yet and providing reasons like weather or late arrivals. 84. A lot of percentage points on this week's By the Numbers. That's the increase in animal-related incidents aboard Delta flights since 2016, according to the airline. Delta updated its service and support animal policy, hoping to stop urination and biting on flights. And other airlines seem to be following suit. Just this week, United kicked an emotional support peacock off a flight from Newark. What do they got against peacocks, huh? I think the bites would have been worth the emotional support. And now, a story about patents. Yes, patents. Right now, more people are applying for patents in the U.S. than ever before. The United States Patent and Trademark Office currently gets six times as many applications as it did in 1980. And we'll get to why in a minute. But first, we wanted to find out how someone gets a patent. So we went to the New York Public Library's Science, Industry, and Business Library, where librarian Ken Johnson works. He's been there 13 years and teaches a class on patents once a month. Behind the reference desk, Johnson keeps a brown, leather-bound book published in 1840. I think it's the earliest compilation of all the patents. Oh my God, they're like a million kinds of butter churns. You know, gathering apples, two patents for that from 1830 and 1831. Here's a patent for relieving a toothache by steam. I'm not sure that necessarily worked. They, they didn't have ibuprofen then. True. So let's say I have the idea that I want to patent a translating device that would attach to my dog's collar and translate her weird little noises into English. Um, what do we wow. do? <laughs> I mean, one of, the, one of the things that you want to do is you want to see, is there a similar product out there just generally, never mind whether someone has a patent on it or not. We would try not to encourage people to give us too much information about the patent. In fact, one of the things that the prospective inventor should keep in mind is the idea of confidentiality. Um, You know, that can be a problem for them possibly in the future. So with my hypothetical dog translator, what would our first step be? Well... Um, first of all, I would probably want to know if you had spent any time on the USPTO website. That's one of the sources you're going to use for your patent searching. Is it ludicrous to, to ask you if we could do a patent search for dog translator? Sure. If you want to do a keyword <laughs> search for dog translator, I think we could do that. 
So the USPTO website is USPTO.gov. Um, and we're going to just start on that. On, in fact, on the very, very first page, we see a link that says search for patents. Okay. So we'll just click on that. So we'll say dog translator. It's actually only going to search from 1976 on. Okay. But, but you wow, could you could go to 1790. That's amazing. And we'll just see what comes up. And the answer is... Oh, my God. Someone did try to make one. God help us. All right. So um, let's check patents. .google.com. And we'll do dog translator on this. Looks like we've got a lot of computer functionality language. Which is interesting that, that the word dog is somewhere in this patent. Somewhere in there. <laughs> or likely to be in this patent. What does it cost to patent an idea? The fees themselves are not necessarily that expensive for individual investors. Using an attorney is going to be running about fifteen, maybe to $20,000. When you consider the cost of starting a business, if that patent is really, really important, perhaps it is worth spending the money. Do, do you think patents are a, a decent litmus test of American ingenuity? Well, patents are, are universal ingenuity. Um, so just to call it American uh, probably would not be entirely fair here. We attract people from all over the world to come here and take advantage of the protections that we offer as well. Ken Johnson, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Johnson's exactly right about that last point. Almost half of all U.S. patent applications today come from non-U.S. citizens. So we reached out to Jay Shambaugh, director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution. He studied the overall increase in patent applications. Welcome. Thank you for having me. The Patent Office is getting almost six times as many applications today as it did in 1980. What is up with that? Some of it you know, is in some sense normal. There are more people in the United States than there were in 1980. Right. The economy is bigger than it was in 1980. So th those things explain part of the growth. Um, but there's certainly not all of it. Foreign applications are up some. They used to be about 40% of patent applications, and now they're about 50% of patent applications. Um, repeat applications are up quite a bit. So if you if you get denied a, uh, your patent application, you can reapply. In fact, there's no limit on how many times you can reapply. So I could just go and back so that, over and over again? You could change your application and keep trying. Hmm. Um, but there probably is some point at which you'd like to say the patent office has said no, and can you please quit wasting their time with this? Well, there's a backlog of applications right now, and I guess I'm wondering, can the office keep up with either the number of applications or, or the amount of innovation that's going on? I think the, the short answer is they're not keeping up as well as they would like to right now. The average time to first ruling, I think, is somewhere around 16 months mm. The backlog is over 500,000 applications. And so certainly that worries you if you think that there are people out there who are coming up with ideas, but they don't know yet if the idea they've got is going to have a patent that can really slow down the process of starting a business or getting funding for your business. And so it would definitely be better for the innovative and entrepreneurial section of the economy if you were able to get that backlog down. You know, there is some research that uh, has been done by Raj Chetty, an economist, and, and his colleagues looking at who comes up with ideas. And I wonder, who comes up with patents? I saw Raj Chetty present some of his research recently, and he had a quote that is both very 
pithy and also depressing, um, where he said, you need two things to become an inventor in America. You need talent and you need to have been born into some money. Mm. The talent part is true in the sense that if you look at the distribution of test scores, the people who wind up getting patents are people who did really well on their kind of third grade math tests. But it is disproportionately those people who are coming out of high income backgrounds. Also, backgrounds where they knew people who patented. We really see this problem in the pipeline where we disproportionately lose women, people from low income backgrounds, people of color for girls to become women inventors, actually, it's really important that they see other women inventors, not just they grow up around people who patented, but they they grew up around women who patented. You know, you think about Grace Hopper, who was this incredible inventor in, in software and did all this important early computer programming work. And you wonder how many Grace Hoppers did we just miss? It's the kind of thing you just you don't want to leave on the table. Jay Shambaugh, director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office tells us reducing patent wait times is their number one priority and that they brought down their backlog from almost 800,000 a decade ago to about 543,000 today. Do you have a patent story you want to tell? Just let us know. We're weekend at marketplace.org or you can leave a message on our voicemail 1-800-648-5114. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. In the ongoing debate over health care in this country, we talk a lot about America's cities. But 46 million people live in rural areas. So how does health care stack up there? A few weeks ago, Dr. Marsha Rollerson, a pediatrician based in Bruton, Alabama, population 5,000, gave us a little perspective. What worries me the most right now is our rural hospital. We have a rural hospital that serves a large population in this part of lower Alabama, and they're right on the edge of going under. As far as my office is concerned, I'm a semi-retired pediatrician now. I care for only children with high-risk conditions. Already, I can't pay my bills. Access to hospitals in rural America is just one issue highlighted in a recent report from the Bipartisan Policy Center. There are others. Higher rates of obesity, heart disease, opioid use... I spoke with Heidi Schultz, a rural health care program officer with the Helmsley Trust based in South Dakota, and Dr. Anand Parekh, chief medical advisor with the Bipartisan Policy Center. They worked on the report together. We started with a look at whether critical access hospitals are needed in rural communities. There are about 5,000 hospitals in the United States, about half that are located in rural areas. And the most common hospital is what's called a critical access hospital. These are hospitals that have less than 25 beds, and they're not really near another hospital. Uh, but what our report really found is that uh, more important than a specific service like a hospital defining a community, healthcare services in rural America really need to be right-sized uh, to fit community needs as opposed to vice versa. And it could very well be that a community is doing fine with a critical access hospital. Other communities might feel that based on their needs, what they need are a different set of services. And so one of the important points that the report was making that is that policymakers really need to be attuned to communities who might want to transform uh, their system, and there ought to be some policy options to help them transform. 
Yeah, Lizzie, I wanted to add, you know, the conversation I think needs to flip from how do we save this rural hospital to what does our community need for health care and to have those conversations. And then, you know, policy needs to follow to allow those communities to have what they need, which might not be inpatient beds, which is pretty typical for these, um, especially the more extreme rural um, hospitals. Um, inpatient is probably um, the least amount of volume that they have. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you guys highlight is the question of maybe having more PAs, more skilled nurses, more telemedicine. I wonder, though, how do you square that with, say, a you know, local official who says, well, but this local hospital is also a really big employer for us, not just a provider of care? That's, that's a very important point. Uh, there are about 80 hospitals, critical access hospitals, that have closed over uh, the last decade or so. And you're absolutely right. That can... Uh, very much decimate uh, a community and and its local economy. But I think an even more important number is that there are probably several hundred critical access hospitals that are just barely making it. So their margins are very small. So they have low uh, average censuses. They They might only have two or three patients in the hospital. They have high operating costs. So from a sustainability perspective uh, in the long term, uh, it's very hard to sustain operations like this. So I think the question for localities is, is how do you transform uh, to make sure that you're more sustainable? Because at the end of the, end of, of the day, a transformed entity is, of course, better than a closed entity, both for community health and for the local economy. Heidi, when you look at this from a policy standpoint, um, what do you see as sort of viable ways to, to move forward with some of these services, given that talking about healthcare is so fraught in this country. So what we were really looking for is policymakers to, to look at rural in a different lens and to not just kind of paint a broad picture of healthcare and make the assumption that, that rural entities can fit within um, the decisions made in D.C. Uh, we're really just hoping that we can, you know, highlight some of these issues that, that, are, are tough for rural. So, for example, um, value-based payment. Rural wants to do that. There, there's some great quality um, happening, but some of the reimbursement structures don't work. Um, we don't have the numbers of patients. We don't have the volume needed. Um, we don't but have the volume. Let's back up a little bit and, and sure. define value-based payment for our listeners. So we're, we're talking about sort of paying for specific outcomes, not necessarily services, right? Correct. So, so going from paying per fee uh, for for a service, so that you're paying for, um, you know, like your grocery shopping and you're buying this item and this item. Um, in in medicine, in in general, today we're still um, paying for a medical service on a on a fee basis, uh, but we're trying to move towards a value basis. So, there are things where providers can share some of the the risk um, to to providing um, value based services. There's some different models where you can just share in the savings. Um, and there are some rural entities, um, you know, participating in ACOs and some of the models that are doing well. Um, but it's it's very challenging for, for rural to participate in those models. Where should the money come from to do this? There does need to be some uh, initial support. I'll give you one specific example. Uh, Heidi mentioned uh, some of the new payment models that are being tested one is called the Accountable Care Organization model. Yeah, and, it was a, a, studies, a part of the Affordable Care Act. Exactly. And, and, and one of the tracks of the Accountable Care Organization model, these ACO model, uh, was this advanced payment um, uh, track. And, and in that model, uh, entities 
uh, like, uh, like hospitals and, and clinicians who form ACOs, they get an advanced payment. That advanced payment allows them to build the infrastructure, whether it's information technology or care management, to be able to engage in proper population health management. And the results from that advanced payment track of the accountable care organization saw rural ACOs outperforming other ACOs and urban ACOs. And it, it gets back to Heidi's point that, that that healthcare leaders in rural America, they are ready. They want to go on this ride of value-based healthcare transformation, but they do need a little bit of support, uh, whether it's advanced payment or, or they need a little bit of, of, of freedom from some of the regulatory um, uh, constraints or, or otherwise to really set them up for success. Heidi, when you talk to patients and healthcare providers, um, what do they tell you they want and need? You know, what's really interesting about that is so much of what um, rural wants and needs doesn't have to directly deal with what we think of as healthcare, right? As, as inpatient services going to the doctor at their clinic. Um, what, what rural needs, what patients and providers are saying we need, and we see it in many, many of the community health uh, needs assessments that are done, is um, more mental health care services for elderly and not just health care, help with housing, transportation, um, assisted living, um, care for substance abuse, and then access, access to primary care, access to specialists, um, access to um, more services than what they can have um, in their area. And then things like um, obesity management, weight loss, um, and wellness centers. What a lot of these communities don't have is a wellness center or somewhere where they can go and exercise. So there's a lot of needs in rural. Well, Heidi Schultz and Anand Parekh, thank you both so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You can read more about the Rural Healthcare Report from the Bipartisan Policy Center. Just go to our website, marketplace.org. We're working on a show about rural economies, housing, work, education, technology. What do you think we need to know? Our email is weekend at marketplace.org, or you can call us 1-800-648-5114. Reducing the number of federal regulations is a priority for President Trump and something he talked about in his State of the Union speech this week. Federal regulations are also the subject of our podcast, The Uncertain Hour. This season is focused on unpacking the talking points and buzzwords of the regulation debate to understand how our regulatory system really works. Marketplace's Chrissy Clark looks at the idea that federal regulations have become a trap, turning everyday people into criminals. There's this popular Twitter account known as Crime A Day. For the last few years, the person behind it, Mike Chase, has combed through the thousands of laws Congress has passed with criminal consequences and the hundreds of thousands of regulations federal bureaucrats have written to implement those laws. And then he tweets about one obscure federal crime each day. So, for example, it's a federal crime to release a bird into a house in order to scare another bird out of the house. It's a federal crime to get drunk and go to the U.S. Treasury building. And this one is one of my favorites. It's a federal crime to sell a pig carcass if it has a pronounced sexual odor. 
And I'm so sorry you have to know this, but there is a loophole in that last regulation. If the sexual odor is anything less than pronounced... You can sell it as food. It's okay. It's all right if if you're eating that food. <laughs> Unfortunately, what that means is that there is a guy whose job is to go in and go, oh yeah, that's a sexual odor, but I don't know. I wouldn't say it's pronounced. <laughs> it's the sort of the sommelier of sexual pig odor. <laughs> so why does Chase know all this? Because by night, yes, he makes fun of federal crimes. But by day, he's a white-collar criminal defense lawyer in Hartford, Connecticut. He works at a big corporate law firm defending people accused of federal crimes. Silly and not-so-silly-sounding ones, like financial fraud. Chase says, in general, you should divide crimes into two categories. They actually come with fancy Latin names. We learn in law school, malum in se and malum prohibitum. Malum in se are the serious-sounding crimes. It's wrong because it's inherently morally wrong. If you commit murder, it's fairly clear to most people that that's wrong. And then there are all those silly-sounding crimes that Chase has been collecting. He says those are mostly malum prohibitums. It's wrong because somebody says it's wrong. Chase argues we have so many malum prohibitums on the books, so many regulations with criminal consequences about trivial-seeming things, that it can be easy to confuse the serious and the silly-sounding. When there are 300,000, 800,000, who knows how many hundred thousand crimes, it's very easy to do something that the law forbids without knowing you're doing it. But what if the silly and the serious aren't necessarily that far apart? Let's take that pig carcass with a pronounced sexual odor, random as it seems, the smell is actually a real issue for the pig industry. 10 to 20 percent of uncastrated male pigs have what's known in the biz as boar taint. Boar taint. That's Walter Jeffries, a pig farmer in rural Vermont. He told me boar taint comes from pheromones that the boars emit cause the animals to come into heat. Though Jeffrey says simply describing the smell as sexual doesn't do it justice. There's a hint of manure. And locker room. So go grab a guy and have him sweat on an undershirt for you real well, and that's the smell. To me, it smells like and armpits. <laughs> Still, you might wonder, why get the government involved? If people don't want smelly meat, they don't have to buy it. But here's the thing. You can only smell boar taint when pig meat is warm. You wouldn't detect it if it's cold. And, of course, most of us buy pork when it is cold, refrigerated at the store, meaning an unscrupulous pig farmer might be tempted to sell a little tainted meat, knowing it'd go unnoticed, until some unsuspecting bacon lover goes and cooks it. And come on, if enough sexual-smelling pork gets into the pork supply, people are just going to stop buying pork. If you are in a society where that smell is not appealing, and 10% of your boars have that, it's kind of a problem. And that's the origin of the regulation. If someone's caught selling a pig carcass with a pronounced sexual odor, they could face up to a year in prison or a fine up to $1,000. It is a crime. And maybe not quite as ridiculous as it first sounds. Still, there's a movement of people who've spent considerable time and energy bringing attention to the number of silly-sounding regulations on the books with criminal consequences. And the movement goes way beyond Mike Chase, that white-collar lawyer Twitter guy. The issue's earned its own buzzword, overcriminalization. 
There was a guy that was charged with, I think it was Clean Air or Clean Water Act violations because he let go a bunch of balloons after he uh, had become engaged to his fiance. That's Mark Holden, senior vice president and general counsel of Coke Industries, one of the largest private corporations in the country. It's owned by the brothers, Charles and David Coke. I should say Coke Industries has supported marketplace programming in the past. Underwriters have no influence on our journalism. Holden says he and his bosses, the Koch brothers, see the number of regulations with criminal sanctions as a case of government overreach. We're overusing our criminal justice system. These are not acts that people would necessarily understand. By doing it, it's something illegal. Holden told me the Kochs first got involved in this issue they call overcriminalization almost two decades ago. In 2000, Coke Industries and four employees at one of its oil refineries in Texas were charged with 97 counts of federal crimes involving regulations of benzene, a chemical known to cause cancer. The employees faced up to 35 years in prison. In a settlement, all the charges but one were dropped, and a Coke subsidiary pled guilty to one count. It admitted to covering up how much of the carcinogen was being released by the refinery not far from where people lived. The company paid $20 million in fines and environmental cleanup. No one went to prison. Maybe some of the groups on the left, for whatever reason, they want to see people go to prison who have issues with pollution or what have you. But, you know, we have in our society, we have a system. We have civil, we have regulatory, and we have criminal. We need to stop overusing criminal sanctions. Since that oil refinery case, the Koch brothers have spent a lot of money pushing for criminal justice reform. Some efforts have been bipartisan, including a campaign to reduce mandatory minimum sentences for low-level drug offenders. But this other part of the Koch's work, its focus on reducing the number of federal regulations with criminal consequences that they argue could make accidental criminals out of everyday Americans— Critics warn that effort could make it easier for big corporations to break rules meant to protect the public. Let's be clear. For corporate America, you're going to be a lot more reluctant to put public health and the environment at risk if you might go to jail. David Ullman is a law professor at the University of Michigan. Before that, he spent many years prosecuting environmental crimes at the Department of Justice, including the Coke oil refinery case. And Ullman says those malums, the fancy Latin names for crimes that are wrong because they're inherently wrong versus wrong just because someone says they're wrong. Outside of the law school classroom, you know, the world doesn't break out into malum and say and malum prohibitum. I mean, dumping hazardous waste was completely lawful until 1976 when Congress made it a crime because we had hazardous waste sites across America badly contaminating our communities. So at the, I suppose at the moment Congress made it a crime, it was malum prohibitum. That is something that's wrong just because a rule says it's wrong. But, I mean, it seems to me to be inherently wrongful to dump a bunch of hazardous waste and contaminate people's homes and drinking water supplies. For Ullman, what we think of as inherently right and wrong, it's partly shaped by the government rules we have and the consequences that come with them. I'm Chrissy Clark for Marketplace. There is more to this story about overcriminalization. Subscribe to the podcast Chrissy hosts. It's called The Uncertain Hour. Well, 
according to that tiny furry meteorologist, Punxsutawney Phil, and his human handlers, we are getting six more weeks of winter. But even in this cold, it's kind of hard to say no to ice cream. And if you've ever dreamed of being an ice cream flavor maker or taste tester, we have a treat for you. No, not ice cream. But, you know, it's almost as good. It's the next iteration of our series, How to Be a Blank. In this case, How to Be an Ice Cream Maker. I am Sarah Fiddler. I'm a flavor guru at Ben & Jerry's. It's basically a combination of some food science and a lot of chef skills, working with our consumer insight team to figure out you know, what's trending right now, and then the flavor gurus get together, do some brainstorming, and then we have a fun job of going into our test kitchen and making up a lot of different variations of ice cream product. We taste them all. I'd say in a typical week at work, I probably eat about two pints total. I probably have about 15 pints in my freezer at home and pretty much every night have been digging into them. (laughs) I graduated with a food science degree and very shortly after decided I wanted to go to culinary school. I was looking for a way to marry my love of food with my kind of natural tilt toward science and the interest that I had in food science. We actually have a few chefs, you know, that that don't have a science background on the team and some people who have really strong chemist or flavor backgrounds. And we all balance each other out really well and learn from each other's strengths. I think the most important thing, honestly, is kind of an open-mindedness. Everyone's really excited to try something they haven't tried before, you know, give their honest feedback, and, you know, see what a curry might taste like in an ice cream or what figs taste like or something like that 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 you might not expect. I mean, it it definitely helps to have um, a background in knowing, you know, what might go together and what might not, but at the same time being open to saying, you know, maybe when I tried this in a cookie it didn't work, but maybe it'll work with an ice cream background. When I first started, I was encouraged to just play around in the test kitchen and just, you know, don't think about trying to make something for the market, just learn how to make ice cream on a small scale and play around with whatever you'd want to play with. So I made a curry coconut ice cream, which I thought was pretty delicious, and a few other people thought it was delicious, but um, I think it has a few years before it might become a fan favorite. (laughs) A lot of my friends think that I spend most of my day making and eating ice cream, and I do spend a good amount of time making and eating ice cream, but I think a lot of people would be surprised to know how much of my job is kind of typical office, you know, doing paperwork, going to meetings. I think a lot of people are like, oh, you have the best job, you just get to play with ice cream all day. I'm like, yeah, it is a pretty awesome job, but there's also a lot of paperwork that goes along with it. That piece was produced by Eliza Mills.
You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. And at 9 a.m. on Monday, Jerome Powell, better known as Jay, will be sworn in as the chairman of the Federal Reserve, picking up the reins from arguably the most powerful woman in the world and one who has led the Fed since 2014, Janet Yellen. You know, Janet is renowned for her good judgment. She sounded the alarm early about the housing bubble, about excesses in the financial sector, and about the risks of a major recession. Uh, she doesn't have a crystal ball, but what she does have is a keen understanding about how markets and the economy work, not just in theory, but also in the real world. That was, of course, former President Obama announcing her as his choice. Mr. President, thank you for giving me this opportunity to continue serving the Federal Reserve and carrying out its important work on behalf of the American people. Wonderful. Yellen not only led the Fed, the first woman to do so, but also picked up a few other things there, like her husband, George Akerlof, who was on a temporary Fed assignment when she met him in 1977. He's got a Nobel Prize, by the way. Yellen's speeches and testimony were never barn burners. As I noted on previous occasions, waiting too long to remove accommodation would be unwise, potentially requiring the FOMC to eventually raise rates rapidly, which could risk disrupting financial markets and pushing the economy into recession. But her hand on the economic tiller and her oft-repeated mantra that the Fed's moves were dependent on data and that they wanted the markets to know just what they were up to brought a remarkable era of steadiness to the central bank. When she began her term, unemployment was at 6.7 percent. Now it's at 4.1 Inflation has stayed low. And in her last press conference in December, Yellen was asked by Heather Long of The Washington Post what she would say to women and minorities about finding opportunity in economics. I will just say from my own experience, I think economics is a terrific field. I think also a greater diversity, more women and minorities um, may change the focus to some extent of the questions that people choose to look at and the analysis that they bring in range of thinking that bears on research. And all of that would be a healthy development. Chair Yellen, happy trails. Coming up next week on Marketplace, my colleague Kai Rizdahl talks with the host of Bloomberg Technology and my former colleague, Emily Chang, about her new book, Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley. In this Me Too moment, Chang writes about how the Silicon Valley Boys Club has accelerated growth, but at the expense of women. In some companies, bad behavior is just the norm. So I I spoke to many engineers at Uber who said, yeah, in the middle of the day, we'd be invited to strip clubs and bondage clubs and to drink at three in the afternoon. Uber had kegs open in the middle of the office. And, you know, there's there's a study that shows that women and men, that their code is graded equally when their identities are hidden. But when their identities are revealed, women get worse grades. That's unacceptable. And on the next Marketplace Weekend, 
what makes a song a hit? The answer may lie in how people listen to it. The music industry will soon give more weight to paid streaming rather than free when figuring out what's popular. You may have had two to three million plays of your song, but now it counts less on the Hot 100. The whole point of the Hot Charts was to reflect what people were listening to, not necessarily what was making the record labels money. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Daniel Powell is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.